Hello, and welcome to another episode of Obscurity Knocks, the podcast that you might have reasonably believed was gone for good, well, with it having been more than a year since the last episode. Look, I've been busy, you know? No, really, I've been working on a book. In case you haven't heard, it's a collaboration with David Zucker, Jim Abrams, and Jerry Zucker. Yes, I'm serious, and don't call me Shirley. So, there you go. Imperfect combination of semi-legitimate excuse and unabashed self-promotion. Moving on. This week, we present an episode that proves definitively that I really need to start a Patreon campaign for this podcast because I've been sitting on this absolutely wonderful interview for damn near a year, and yet it's only just now that I've managed to edit it and release it. Seriously, I would argue that it's one of the best episodes of Obscurity Knocks to date, and as ever, I have very little to do with it, since the success is all down to the amazing anecdotes provided by my guest. You've almost certainly seen his name in the credits of dozens of movies and TV series over the years, including such classics as Pulp Fiction and There's Something About Mary. He's also a familiar face to fans of HBO's Deadwood. But it'll come as no surprise to regular listeners to this podcast that the only time we talk about any of these projects are in passing. I do know that at least two of those three come up in conversation, and if Pulp Fiction itself isn't mentioned, I do know that Quentin Tarantino's name is definitely uttered, so by God I say close enough. If you haven't worked it out yet, the guest is W. Earl Brown. And by the time you've made it to the end of our conversation, you'll have heard stories about him working with Chris Christopherson, Robin Williams, and Burt Reynolds, playing Meatloaf, and appearing in Project Elf. That's right, you heard me. Project Elf. You're welcome, America. And with that, I present to you my well-aged interview with W. Earl Brown. And I promise you, the next episode, it will not take over a year to get here. Six months at best. No, really, it'll be sooner. I promise. I really love doing this podcast. I promise you, the next one will be out much sooner. Okay, now, for real, here's the interview. Enjoy. Hey, Will, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm all right. Excellent. I appreciate you being willing to in- indulge me in this ridiculously premised podcast. <laughs> sure, <man>. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I saw the list, so. Excellent. I remembered them all. <laughs> you did actually remember them all? Oh, yes, yes, the ones you listed, yeah. Okay, excellent. And uh, I don't know if you recall, the, uh, the, if there's any on there that you don't want to tackle, you've got three virtual cards you can play. Uh, okay. So yeah, you can either uh, just... I, I, I don't know that I've seen them all, but I do remember <laughs> doing them all. Well, as long as you remember doing them all, that's really all that matters in this instance. Mm-hmm. You don't have to swear on a stack of Bibles that you've actually had to sit through it. <laughs> There are a couple of things that I've done that I'm like, I ain't watching this shit. <laughs> I applaud that. I don't honestly. remember if any of those are on the list. I guess we'll find out soon. Uh, well, I guess we'll kick it off with uh, Angel Street from uh, 1992. Yeah, that was uh, God. That was one of the first jobs that I did. Um, that show was originally God. I I think it had a different title. Um, but it was kind of a, a, a rip-off of Homicide. Okay. Homicide was coming up based on the David Simon story. Right. And and they used the hook of the, the Homicide board that was up in the Baltimore Police Department that Simon wrote about. Right. Um, and then I remember, there was, I mean, hell, I was a day player. I was a cop, you know, a beat <laughs> cop. I, I had one big scene with Amy Morton. Um, which was a pleasure. I I knew Amy in passing just because of her reputation in Chicago. Mm-hmm. She was one of the great actors, stage actors there. Um, so that that was my my biggest memory of that show was just getting to work with Amy. 
of somebody just like at the very top of their game, um, and that was thrilling. Well, it's definitely a top-notch crew on that because I know Rod Holcomb directed it, but it was uh, written by John Wells. Yeah, yeah, it was. I, I'd forgotten that that it was Wells' show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but again, I remember there being some snafu about a hook that they had used in the show was uh, was derivative of homicide because they had to change some stuff about it and i can't remember i, I want to say there was a different title that angel street but I'm, I'm not i'm not positive of that it was a you know a chicago cop show um and that would have predated er again i'd forgotten that it was wells um you know that was a year or two years before he did er yeah because i was um, too so he, he was doing the Chicago shows before Dick Wolf and Derek Haas. <laughs> and like you said that was one of your earliest uh, works. Uh, how did you end up uh, finding your way into uh, acting in the first place? Well, I had I, I was the first in my family to go to college. I mean, I grew up in rural Kentucky, um, and I went to Murray State, which was the local. It was a it's a college of about twelve thousand students. It's a pretty big school. Um, but it was a state school there nearby. And I just took an acting class on a whim um, and just kind of took to it like a fish to water. <laughs> but it wasn't till uh, God, my third or fourth year of college where I was doing the play that championship season. Oh, yeah. And and it was the first time that things had, had transcended craft. It was more than just simple entertainment. Um, it really affected me. And I remember on closing night when the curtain fell, thinking, I'm, I'm doing this forever. Um, I had no idea as to how. I mean, I didn't know anybody. It just seemed like an impossibility to have a career in Hollywood. I was always a movie nut. Um, the movies that, that really planted the seed that made me think, oh, I, I would love to do that, were my freshman year of high school, Animal House, Halloween, and Star Wars. Um <laughs> They all came out around within a year of one another, and those were the movies I went back to see multiple times and memorized parts of them. And um, but again, it didn't seem like anything you could actually do. But when when I decided in college that I'm pursuing this, um, I had uh, the I knew the Second City because I was a Belushi freak, he was oh, yeah. my hero, <laughs> and and all those Animal House guys and, and Saturday Night Live guys. Uh, the touring company of the Second City had come through, and I met the director, um, Don DiPolo. And at the time, Donnie was the only teacher. There was They didn't have the big class school system that they have now, you know, because they got got 100 students there or more. Yeah. Back then, it was just a handful of people, and it was really the gateway into the company. Don took a shine to me um, and let me skirt the waiting list, and he put me in that summer. In the summer of 1985, Every weekend, I drove from Murray, Kentucky to Chicago, 840-mile round trip, um, and took classes with Donnie. Wow. And, and that was where I'm like, oh, this is what I'm doing. Because in, in Don, I could just tell he really liked me, and, and he was like, you could do this. You could have a career at this. Um, so I auditioned for and got into the Goodman School of Drama, and the master's program. Uh, which is like a, a formal theater conservatory. Um, and then I, I'd been there for a semester. It was toward the end of my first semester, and Don called me, and he said, would you want to join the touring company here at Second City? Yes. Because you, you'd have to have a second job because you can't make a living. I said, I don't care. It's what I want to do. Because I had my plan. 
I was going to do Saturday. I was going to do that for like two or three years. Go to Saturday Night Live, and then get into movies, you know, just <laughs> like Belushi had done. And Don says, "Well, we're hiring a new big guy. Um, you have to go through the formality of the audition, but I'll talk to Joyce and the producers, and I'll, I'll take care of things. Just be there Saturday." Uh, my wife and I are out of town, so I can't be there, but I'll talk to her and take care of it. The last thing he said was, there's this kid at the Improv Olympic that Del Close is crazy about. You know, Del's directing this show, not me. Uh, so it's Del's show. But uh, it, it, just be there, and, and I'll, I'll talk to Joyce. Well, it was me and Farley. Um, oh, wow. So it was my first big showbiz lesson, you know, because I thought, fuck, I've been here just a few months, and, and you know, things are just the way I'd planned them being. And, of course, I didn't know Chris until, you know, I met him at that audition. Yeah. Um, and he, he was, Dell. you know, Dell had taken Chris under wing the same way that Donnie had me. Um, and it was, so it was my first big lesson and first big kick in the balls of like, oh, this, I did get what, <laughs> you know, the big gig, and my dreams aren't going to be that easy. <laughs> um, but it sent me back to school, and I finished my MFA program. And actually, I think I came out of that much better as an actor than I would have been had I not completed it. Yeah. Um, had I not had that experience, so it was a great lesson in in you know getting knocked down and you get back up and get back in the game. Because I was crushed when I didn't get that job because I thought this is a given. Don's <laughs> taking care of this. Uh, I'm in. <laughs> um, and then it didn't work out that way. So that's a very long story of saying that's how I got started. <laughs> My sights were. In, in grad school, my sights were always set on TV film because I knew that's how I could make a living. Right. Um, my goal that I set for myself when I'm like, this is what I, I wanted to have, a comfortable, middle-class existence, raise a family, doing what I wanted to do. Um, that was the goal, and I achieved it. So it, it took me two years out of school. I still worked odd jobs. I painted houses. Um I, I had been a bouncer when I was in school. I worked at, bar, at a bar, a big club there uh, in security. Um, and then I got, gosh, uh, what was the, uh, Backdraft was the movie that got me my, my SAG card. Okay. And, you know, just a bit part in that. And then the movie The Babe about Babe Ruth. All right. I played Herb Pinnock. I was a pitcher for the Yanks. I had three lines in the whole movie. <laughs> but I was on the whole movie. I was like a Schedule F contract because I was a Yankee. Yeah. Um, so that was the one that allowed me to to stop doing anything else. Angel Street came about somewhere around that time. I can't remember if it was before or after the Babe, but it was right about the time that the ball had started to roll for me. And I'd done seven things, eight things in Chicago, uh, the pinnacle being um, – uh, excessive force for New Line. Uh, I was the bad guy. Uh, Burt Young was the main, he was like the mafia Don, and I was his renegade crazy son who committed all sorts of violence. And they wanted a known star for it. They just couldn't afford it. Um, so they hired me locally at scale plus 10. And, and I knew as I was doing it, like, okay, I'm a supporting lead in I mean, it was New Line, so it was still an indie, yeah. but like a known, this is a known company's film, and this is the glass ceiling in Chicago. So um, so that was kind of like, I, I did Rookie of the Year right after that, the other baseball movie, the yeah. kids' movie, and then I came to L.A. But Angel Street was in there 
<clears throat> around the time of the babe. Again, it wasn't my first gig. The ball had started to roll, and like, oh shit, I get paid handsomely to do this. <laughs> um, which at that point, you know, day player scale was damn damn handsome when you're you know painting houses. Sure. <laughs> so. Before I leave all the Chicago behind, I have to ask if you've got any particular Del Close anecdote, because it seems like everybody's got some sort of Del Close story. I, ne- I never knew Del. Okay. He had left. The Second City was the place that I, and he had left at that point. He had started the Improv Olympic with Sharna Alprin. Yeah. Um, and I never, once, Donnie, and the, Donnie passed away not long after I, he had dealt with Crohn's disease. Uh, he passed away not long after I got out of school. Okay. So my whole contact with that world, I took one more class at the Second City with Michael Gelman, but I, I never knew Dell. As a matter of fact, I never even met Dell oh, wow. face-to-face. <laughs> I mean, I knew of the legend of Dell, of course, <laughs> and he, he was Belushi's mentor. Yeah. Uh, but, no, I, I never never crossed paths with him. Oh. Well, let's see. Uh, next up is uh, Without Evidence, which is a... Uh, a film that I actually was not yeah. aware of, but I was impressed that Angelina Jolie and uh, Anna Gunn also in it. Yeah. Oh, God, I forgot Anna was in there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, that was, um, you know, that was Gil Dennis, um, who, you know, I just, I got cast out of an audition. And we shot up in Salem, Oregon. Um, God, what was that? that? That was not long after I moved out to L.A. Uh, 95 is when it came out. 95 it came out, yeah. So 94 we filmed. Um, and and Angie, I didn't have scenes with her, but I, I you know, I just knew she was John Voight's daughter. Yeah. Um, that's how I always remembered it. I don't even know. I, you know, I don't think I met her when we were doing the film, but I just knew John Voight's daughter. <laughs> um, and th- that's one, you know, I don't think I've ever seen the film. Um, I don't. Yeah, think well, the streaming now is your big chance to uh, find out what it's. Yeah, I should track it down. <laughs> I loved working with Gil. You know, he was like, he, you know, he, he was Sam Peckinpah's son-in-law. Um, you know, and had been around the business and wrote several uh, well-known movies. Um, I don't know if that was his first directing effort. I know he was primarily a screenwriter. Um, but I, yeah, it was. Uh, I think it was, it was his first experience. full-length film. I think yeah. it was a short film before that. Well, it was a character like right in my wheelhouse, a rural, you know, hibbilly kind of guy that wore overalls <laughs> and tennis shoes. Um, so when, it wasn't a big stretch for me to play that part. Um, but it was. I, I remember having uh, having fun doing the movie, just working with him. And Scott Plank was awesome, the guy that played the lead. Oh, yeah. Um, he unfortunately passed away just a few years after we did the movie. Oh, wow. Well. Um, but uh, but I remember remember I had several scenes with him. Um, but yes. And then uh, next up, I'm very excited to ask about this Project Elf. <laughs> 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 uh, um, oh man, I remember shooting at the Pink Motel uh, here in Sunland. Um, that's where we we did it. Um, and gosh. Uh, Oh, God, who directed that? Um, uh, Dick Lowry. Dick Lowry, yep. yes. And um, you know, it was one scene. <laughs> and I had It was one decent scene in the movie. Hell, I, I'd never watched the TV show. <laughs> um, and uh, it wasn't until afterwards that, you know, I, I have since watched several Alps. But I just remember shooting at the Pink Motel. 
and and there being a dude in the room we were next to who was a Kiss fanatic. He didn't have a car. He lived at the Pink Motel, and and he had tickets for the first Kiss convention. It was one hundred and five dollars, I think, was his ticket. And the dude literally didn't have a car. His whole hotel room was Kiss posters, and he had all these Kiss collectibles. Like he, he you know, he lived in a Pink Motel. But that, that was my most vivid memory. It was like I walked by on this double take. I'm like, hey, do you kiss me? Oh, dude, are you into kiss? Oh, man. Let me go. So, yeah, that was my primary memory of that movie, more so than doing the work. Because well, I remember being fascinated by this this guy. of like, wow, that's somebody whose who's values in life are unusual. <laughs> well, now, given that you filmed at the... Uh, the motel, I, I know that uh, Ray Walston is credited as motel manager. Was he in your scene? Uh, he was the scene that just uh, preceding mine, okay. like when they checked into the hotel. Um, I did see that movie. I saw it when it aired, but God, that's been, you know, 20 some odd years ago. Um, somebody sent me a screen capture um, that was on, um, it was, it's been within the last six months of a year. Someone sent us through social media screen capture from that film, my most vivid memory was, holy shit, I look young. <laughs> and relatively skinny at that point. That was before I did Scream. I perp- well, I'd always, I mean, I've always battled weight, but I purposely gained weight for Scream and never lost it. <laughs> I've never been back to the weight that I was at that point. Um, the price yeah, of method acting. Alf, what year was that? Ninety five. Ninety five. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because it, I mean, we filmed it not long before it was on air. So yeah, we we, we shot Scream early ninety six. So yeah, it was around that same time. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, next up would be the Cherokee Kid. No. Oh, I got a story with that one. <laughs> uh, we, um, it, I, you know, it's. I have two scenes. I think. They were they were scenes, you know. There was something to play. It wasn't just like you know, day player cop. Yeah. Um, I played this unscrupulous fur trader who has been cheating uh, the old trapper played by Burt Reynolds. I've been oh, yeah. cheating him for years because he's illiterate. <laughs> and when Sinbad hooks up with him, Sinbad plays this runaway slave um, who goes out to the west and he hooks up with Burt Reynolds. Uh, well, he can do math, and he realizes that I've been cheating him. Um, and then there's a showdown with me and Bert, and he kills me uh, with his knife. He blasts me with this butt knife, uh, throws it at me. Well, the story behind it is um, my dad died suddenly. Uh, right before the last conversation we had, I had just gotten that film. Oh, wow. And it was a Western, I mean, you know, Western comedy, but he loved Western. Now, growing up, I didn't see my dad traveled a lot. With it. He was a car dealer. So he was on the road a lot. And I'd usually see him on weekends. He'd be home. And um, I, the only thing I knew, if there was a Burt movie in the theater or a Clint Eastwood movie, chances are we were going to go to the movies. Yeah. I could count on that. If there was a Burt or Clint movie, we would do something as a family. <laughs> so my dad died suddenly. And Burt had not signed on to the film at that point when, when I talked to Daddy. Yeah. Um, so anyway, here were three weeks three weeks later, four weeks later, I'm filming it. 
And I, I think I had a weak deal. I think I shot like three days or something, two days. I don't know. But um, we get there. The first thing we're doing is the death scene. It's the scene inside when he thwacks me with the knife. Well, they're talking with the stunt coordinator and everything, and Bert just leans over. He goes, Earl, right? Yeah. He goes, look, this is a rubber knife. You're wearing that thick leather apron. Is it okay if I just throw it at you? I mean, instead of them freaking out, spending all this fucking time. I said, yeah, man, no problem. Bert goes, hey, hey we got it. We got it. We're just, we're just going to do it. Right around. We're going to see it. Yeah, I'm cool. Look, we're just going to do it. Just, but just roll it. Don't worry about all this shit. Roll it. <laughs> so we got to do it. First take. And he's standing about, just like four or five feet away from me. First take, we do our scene, dialogue, dialogue, dialogue. Sinbad whispers this in his ear. Bert gets a, an angry look in his eye. He pulls his butt knife out from it on a sling on his back. He pulls it over his back and he throws it at me. Full force, he throws it at me. Right in the nuts. But like, dead on in the crotch. And, because I just, I mean, it, it, it wrapped me up like it knocked the air out of my lungs. It hit me so hard. <laughs> so, because I'm supposed to die. Well, all I'm doing, hell, I can't breathe because he's knocked the air out of me. <laughs> Laying on the ground trying to pretend like I'm dead. And Bert is just, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Oh, my God, are you okay? Are you okay? He's over, overly concerned of my well-being. He felt so bad about what he had just done. So he's like, you know, bring, bring Earl's chair over here. Do you need anything, Earl? And he had an assistant working for him. He goes, get, 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 her, get, get, get her some water. So, so suddenly I became Bert's little buddy because he felt bad about what had happened. <laughs> and we were about midway through the day. And uh, everywhere Bert's chair went, he made sure my chair was right next to him. <laughs> and and um, midway through the day, I, we're chatting, and I told him, I said, you know, growing up, my dad, I said, if it, if it was your movie or if it was Clint's movie, we were going to the movies. <laughs> and I could count on seeing my dad. He goes, oh, that makes me feel so good. You know, he goes, you know, because those, those silly, schlocky movies we did, you know, it just makes me feel good to know that families, you know, enjoyed them. Um, we should give your dad a call. Let's, let's give him a call. Uh, and, and I got teary-eyed. <laughs> and I went, he, he just died just a few weeks ago. And so suddenly I became Bert's best buddy. <laughs> For the next two days, everywhere I went, Bert was with me, you know. And uh, so it was that that was my, my greatest memory of doing that film. <laughs> the movie ended up being, it's not terrible, it's not great. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but that was my memory of, of somebody that I had grown up, you know, seeing in the movies uh, that became a friend, you know. And, and he, was, he was super kind to me um, and gracious. And, and I remember he was shooting uh, Boogie Nights at the same time. Oh, wow. You know, of course, that was his big, huge comeback. Yeah, he didn't like. He didn't like it. He didn't have very many good things to say about it. <laughs> you know, as we're doing it, and um, and he was telling me stories of in the seventies of actually having visited a Linda Lovelace set <laughs> and how embarrassed and uncomfortable he was. Um, and, and and that's what you know, because Boogie Nights is, is one of the all-time great films. Oh yeah. Um, you know, and afterwards, when Bert first saw it, he didn't like it. Yeah. Uh, you know, whatever whatever nerve it touched in him, something personal that he took issue with. I don't know exactly what it was, um, but yeah, that's that's my that's my memory of that movie. That's a great memory, though. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Let's see. Uh, next up, we've got uh, Bella Mafia. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, uh, working with Dennis Farina. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, first of all, Bella Mafia. It was a miniseries for CBS. It was a four-hour movie, and Jennifer Tilly and I play husband and wife. The story was. It was this mafia family, and at the end of the first two-hour film, all of the men are killed, the father and the three sons. Well, then the mother and the daughters-in-law take over. So that's it in a nutshell. And it was written by the, the British writer, the woman that wrote, um, oh, that show Helen Mirren starred in. Oh, uh, Prime Suspect. Um, what, which one? Uh, Prime Suspect. Yes, yep. yes, yes. I think I'm correct in saying it's the same writer. Um, th that uh, Bella Mafia wasn't quite as good as Prime <laughs> Suspect. It was, it was really kind of overwritten. And Jennifer and I, uh, that that actually inadvertently led to something about Mary. That film did. Oh, okay. Because Jen and I, um, we kind of made fun of the scenes. <laughs> like you know, we we played them a little tongue in cheek. Yeah. Like we had what was supposed to be this torrid sex scene that we kind of played it funny. <laughs> And the director loved it because it gave some levity to this, you know, some of these heavy-handed scenes. Yeah. Uh, and he was encouraging it. And Gary Yoshiba, who was a camera assistant, he was working B-camera. Um, he was on Mark Irwin's crew, and he had shot the three Wes Craven films that I had done. Um, New Nightmare, Vampire in Brooklyn, and Scream. Yeah. And after one take, Gary comes up to me, he goes, oh, my God, you're funny. You're really funny. I've never seen you do flat-out comedy. Mark, we're doing this new Fairley Brothers movie. It's called There's Something About Mary. You should check it out, man. You should come down to Florida and work on that movie with us. So that's the first thing I ever heard of Something About Mary was, was from Gary on that show. Wow. Um, but Bella Mafia, Vanessa Redgrave played the mother. And, and I take nothing away from Vanessa's skill. She's a wonderful actress. But... You want to talk about uh, uh, a little bit of a diva, ah. put it that way. Now, she and the director, David Green, had a long history. Now, they, I mean, they went back to the – David was in his 80s at that point. Um, and I had worked with David previously on another, uh, another show, um, and um, so I kind of knew him. Mm -hmm. um, but he and Vanessa, every single day, they would butt heads and get in a screaming match. Um, and I just remember Farina walked over to me at one point, and he goes, he just rolls his eyes. Dennis just walks away. Dennis was like the coolest dude you'd ever meet. He walks up to me. He had just finished Saving Private Ryan before we started Bella Mafia. Dennis goes, you know what the answer to this shit is, don't you? I said, what? War pictures. They don't have actresses in them. <laughs> Not that I agree with Dennis's sentiment. That's a good line. Um, but in that moment, in that morning, uh, it was it was a note perfect comment um, by Officer Farina. So so yeah, those that that the leading to something about Mary and working with Dennis were the thrills of doing that show. Excellent. And it ended up being watchable. It's you know it's not the greatest TV in the world. Uh, it's watchable in kind of a pulpy way. Yeah. <laughs> you know. You know? Uh, 
I don't know that that was purposely the intent, but, uh, but yeah, it, it ended up not being a bad thing. Let's see, uh, next up, uh, your your starring vehicle, uh, Meatloaf to Helen Back. <laughs> uh, well, I look like Meatloaf. <laughs> um, yeah, that was one, uh, you know, Jim McBride. Uh, it was a difficulty in that all of the people involved had to sign off on the script. And and the script followed. I mean, it was it was a it was a formula. It was MTV's behind the music. You know, you watch all of those shows, those behind the musics from that period. They all had the same structure. Yeah. You know, the rock star hits. He has a big hit song, and then he falls into drugs or drinking or whatever, and falls on the skids, and then makes the big comeback. And that was every one of those shows, no matter what band that it was about. And when they decided to make their, their movies that rock, um, I don't know that we were the first one, but we were one of the first ones. So, we, you know, the structure of the thing followed that format. And, um, and everybody, Meatloaf and Jim Steinman and, and um, David, uh, who their manager, they were all in lawsuits with each other, um, you know, and they had been for years. And every, you could not change any line of dialogue in the thing because it had been signed off on by all of those principals. They all had script approval. And, and some of the scenes were, were, were a bit hackneyed. They were cliché and obvious. Yeah. And Jim and I would sit there and talk about, well, okay, how do, we, how do we circumvent this? How do we not hit the nail so directly on the head? You know, how do we make this interesting? Um, and I, I actually think that Jim made a, a really watchable movie um, in a very difficult circumstance. You know, and on the totem pole of prestige, um, you know, starring in a, a rock and roll biopic on cable TV is not exactly up there. Um, but I think we, we made a, a I think we made a, a watchable movie uh, when we had all the star, the cards stacked against us. And, and man, they aired that sucker. I got to go see Led Zeppelin when they played at the O2 Arena at the Amit Erdogan Tribute in 07. Wow. You know, as my all-time favorite band, and long story short, but I, uh, uh, John Paul had been a Deadwood fan. We had a mutual friend. Lo and behold, I get invited to the show. So I go to the Zeppelin show. There was a party afterwards, and, and I was trying to hail a cab at like 2 or 3 in the morning. The tube station had closed. We were trying to get back to Westminster. Well, there were two VH1 execs. We shared a cab. And uh, we get in the cab. I'm there with a couple of musician friends from Nashville that were there at the show. So we're all crammed in this cab. We're talking something, and, and the, the, the guy goes, well, I know who you are. I said, huh? He goes, we work for VH1. We're, we're, we work at the network. And we've actually aired you more on our channel than I think we have Led Zeppelin. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I went, oh, you mean the Meatloaf movie? Because they aired it like 70-some-odd times in the first year. I mean, it was on constantly. So it actually led to me getting other gigs. Um, and it led to more direct work for me than something about Mary did. Wow. Um, so, yeah, that, I, I actually have very fond memories of, of working with Jim and, and feel like that we, we turned out something that was pretty good. Um you know, we played the hand we had dealt really well. Um, so, yeah, that was, I have fond memories of doing that one. Were you actually a Meatloaf fan going in? Oh, as a kid, yes. <laughs> the first, and I still, 
the first record, the Todd Rundgren record, Bad Out of Hell, yeah. go listen to it. It's extraordinary. And in that, it's so over the top, um, but it works. There's like a sense of humor to it. Um, you know, they, they struck just the right note. Um, the subsequent records, I'm not as much as a fan of, and I got to know Meatloaf. Um, you know, in the course, I met him beforehand, and I've become really good friends with his daughters, with Pearl and Amanda. I'm still oh, yeah. friends with Pearl and Amanda. Uh, but Meatloaf, after the movie, him and Leslie got divorced, and he blamed the movie. <laughs> um, so, so it's always odd when I, because I, I cross paths with him every now and again. Um, and I know he's got a bit of a, a bee in his bonnet about that movie. So, so yeah, that's that's the odd part. But yes, I was a fan because I was the insecure fat kid when I was 13 years old when that record came out, and seeing him on the midnight special, uh, you know, this raging fat guy who was incredibly sexual, and chicks dug him. I'm like, well, dude, I could, maybe I could be that. I could grow my hair and get a tuxedo. Um, but no, I, I I did. I was a fan of the record. And, you know, kind of being that kid myself, as he was at that age. Um, so, yeah, I was a fan. Excellent. Uh, let's see. Next up. I'm uh, a music nut. Music is my favorite. Of I go to live music all the time, and my tastes run the gamut. All kind of music. And I play music. Uh, I'm not the greatest musician in the world, but I can play. Um, so, so, yes. Anything that's music-related is, is a special thrill for me. So, like I said, next up would be uh, Dancing at the Blue Iguana. Uh, uh, that was creatively a thrilling experience. Um, Michael Radford was the director, and, you know, we were coming off of Il Postino, uh, which I thought was an extraordinary movie. And Michael had, he wanted to work, he was friends with Mike Lee, and he wanted to do an improv film the way Mike Lee does his films. Yeah. Um, my friend Sheila Kelly had written this script about these dancers, these strippers. And he got on board with it. Well, then he decided in that process that he, want, this is the, he wanted to make this his improv film. <laughs> I was brought on, gosh, they were, uh, there were uh, two months of rehearsals where the, char- the actors created characters and you would improvise. And they were already two weeks in, and William Forsythe was in the cast. Okay. He quit. Um, he did not like the process, because they were playing improv games and actor games and stuff. And, and Michael Radford, he was kind of feeling his way through it, because he'd never worked in that, that manner before. Right. Well, when Forsythe quit, he goes, I need, I need another male character in this. We need, and Sheila said, you've you got to hire Earl. You've got to hire Earl. <laughs> and something about Mary was, that was just, you know, the movie, it was still, I don't think we were still in theaters, but when she showed him something about Mary, and I was hired the next day. <laughs> so, uh, me and, uh, um, gosh, who else? Um, um, Kristen Bauer. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we joined the cast at the same time. Uh, so the others were already two weeks ahead of us. Um, and when we stepped in and you basically had, you had to create this character for yourself and you would come into rehearsals and a typical day would go like this. Michael videotaped everything. He had 70 plus hours of footage of improvs. We, we were in a theater over on in Hollywood 
and we had it cordoned off like this part of the this is the stage this is where the girls dance this is the backstage area this is where michael would come in and goes all right today it is five o'clock on a tuesday afternoon you're all coming in to work stop that'd be it and then for two hours we would improvise um and then bits and pieces would kind of be called like all right remember that let's Let's expand on that idea in that scene. Let's do a scene with you. Now, Jennifer Tilly was in it also. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, and um, so it, that was an exhilarating process. Um, and then we started to film. We had a week off, or maybe it was two weeks. Mike had to do a script to, for his completion bond. And then we, we were filming. We had built our sets. Um, and when the camera started rolling, another personality of Michael came out. Um, someone who was so collaborative and open and supportive became the exact opposite of that. Uh, I think he just works from a place of panic and insecurities. Um, because when we started shooting, he was a tyrant, uh, just a tyrant, and and was viciously cruel to actors um, for no real reason. And um, so in that, as we were shooting it, because we, it was improvised. We, we would have setups. We would have scenes like, all right, this is a scene in Bob's office, and we're, we got to mention such and such plot point. But um, so we would film, and then he would say, oh, let's do it again. Um, make sure you the mention of the glasses because that that relates to the other part of that scene we shot. Mention those, but do something different. So Erickson Core was our DP, um, and it, we shot single camera. So Erickson was in there. He was improvising the same as the actors were. He was kind of moving the frame, like following the energy of the scene. And as we're shooting that way, I thought, this is going to be unwatchable. How in the <laughs> hell are you going to edit this? <laughs> Ended up, again, not a great film. There's a couple of story elements that don't work, um, but there are some story elements Sandra Oh just broke my heart. Oh, my God, was she phenomenal in that movie. Um, so it's, you know, it's a watchable film with some really, really good parts to it. Um, it, it could have been better overall. So, you know, my, my grandest memories were the rehearsal process was glorious. I loved it. And the process of shooting it was a nightmare. Um so, so yeah, it was two sides of the same coin. But still, I'm 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 happy. I still have a poster of it on the wall in my office. Oh, nice. <laughs> That's something I find interesting. Uh, which posters an actor will have of his own work? Like John Cryer, the only one of himself that he's got is the the punk rock western movie Dudes that he did with mm-hmm. Dan Roebuck. It's the only poster. It's a Japanese poster of him. He's like it's just it's so bizarre that I have to have it. I have four of them up in my office. I have Scream. Something About Mary, Dancing at Blue Iguana, and Bloodworth, the movie that I wrote um, that Christofferson starred in. Right. Those are the only four posters. I have a ton of rock and roll posters. I have these big high ceilings out in my office, um, and they're full of posters. Nice. But those are the only four movie posters I have up. And Bloodworth is forthcoming on the list, so you get a chance yeah. to hype that, too. Uh, but next up is actually uh, Push Nevada. Oh, gosh. Um... You know, that was a TV series for ABC that it had a hook, that there was a, a puzzle that the viewers, any 
viewer that could solve it. I think it was $100,000 was the prize money. Um, that was the hook to it. Mm-hmm. The show ended up getting canceled before the 13 episodes because they had it plotted out for, I think it was 13. Yeah. Uh, and we were canceled. We, don't, we were in the middle of filming seven or eight when they pulled the plug on it. Um, and they ended up having to, whoever could partially solve the puzzle, and they did all sorts of things in it, like, like I, I was I, I was a homeless guy with a, um, a shopping cart. Well, my shopping cart would creak as I moved it. Well, the wheel, it was fucking Morse code. <laughs> that was one of the clues. The squeaking wheel on my cart was Morse code for, you know, whatever piece of the puzzle. Um, and they ended up, somebody, somebody came up with it, won the money. Um, so, yeah, that was... It was an okay show. Um, you know, I remember my favorite working with Leslie Jordan was an absolute hoot. I'd ah. never met him before, and just sitting there talking to him. Um, oh wait, no, yeah, yeah, that was the, yes, that's the one Leslie was on. Um, so yeah, he seems I don't like have a, a whole lot of memories. And, and Davis Goog and I—that's where I met Davis. Okay, ended up, you know, doing Deadwood. Uh, he was the producing director of the first season of Deadwood. He was a. Um, one of the staff directors on Push. I think he did one or two episodes that I was in. I did. It was definitely one of those uh, series that was uh, had a wealth of character actors in it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, Stephen Culp, uh, Kachata Farrell was in it, I know. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, they were pressing it on the gimmick of, you know, viewership of solving the puzzle. Yeah. Um, which kind of, you know... Uh, it wasn't bad. It wasn't a bad show at all, uh, as far as the writing. But I think the I think the gimmick uh, took too much of the focus, and I think that's why a lot of people didn't tune in. So I think if you're gonna give away a prize that's that substantial and you still get canceled, something's off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. 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 Uh, let's see. So next is uh, Killer Diller. Oh, let's. See. Oh, yeah. Um, Gosh, that movie's had a couple of different titles. That, that was the Clyde Edgerton novel uh, with Trisha Brock. Um, I shot that in Missouri with, with Lucas Black. Um, played Lucas's dad. Um, I loved working with Trisha. And, and, and it, that was another one of those characters kind of right in my wheelhouse. It didn't take a whole lot to, uh, you know, to create the guy. Um, another poor hillbilly guy. With, a, with an autistic son who was a musical genius. Um, I think at one point, my sister saw it because it was called Rockin' the House. And you played, the, you, your son played the piano, and it was that movie. Um, <laughs> I saw it. I saw the, the completed version of it. Don't, I think I just saw it once. Um, pretty good movie. I, I enjoyed the process of doing it and working with her. Um, that was she's now a pretty well-known TV director, um, but that was her her first her first film. Well, one of the things that struck me immediately when I looked at the cast was that uh, Taj Mahal was in it. Mm-hmm. He did the music. Yeah, and we did uh, we played at Tribeca Film Festival, and and um, we had a party at the uh, the knitting factory there in town, and I got up and played with the band. Uh, I wasn't. He wasn't on stage at the time. Taj wasn't. But yeah, he did. He did some of the music. Uh, and then working with Lucas. Lucas was one that. He's an incredible actor. 
you know, I know so because you know I went to I went to theater school, I went to conservatory, and I know so many people that worked and trained and you know just couldn't make a go of it. Lucas just backed into it. Lucas is a natural. He he didn't have to have all that training. Um, and uh, when we were doing the movie, because he'd never played a character like that. Yeah. Um, this this character was was autistic. He was a, a savant. Um, and Lucas had never played anything like that, and he was nervous about doing it. And he knew I had done something about Mary, so I think that made him doubly nervous. Um, and he was phenomenal. I think you're, you're never going to take the country out of him. You're never going to get the southern dialect off his tongue. Um, but anything within that box, that guy's capable of. He's he just, and the fact that he'd never had an acting class, he just. <laughs> He said, he goes, yeah, uh, and he didn't enjoy doing it. He was wanting to quit. And I said, well, what keeps you doing it? Well, it's a real good way to make a living. Hell, you ought to see the bass boat I just bought with cash. <laughs> <laughs> um, but on that Kevin Costner movie, I think it was The War, Yeah. Um, they did a, a, a broadcasting call all over the country. And he said, my mom took me down. She heard about it on the radio. He goes, I think. If truth be known, I think Mama was just hoping she's going to meet Kevin Costner. Um, but she goes, you know, you're good at that kind of stuff. You ought to go do that. She took me down there. 2,000 kids later, man, I got cat. And then, like, a year later, Billy Bob put me in Sling Blade, and after that. Um, so, yes, working with him was was it was it a thrill. Uh, because most people that are that good um, – you know, they have a formal training background. Not all actors, but most of them do. Most of the successful ones. And and to work with somebody that's just totally a savant at it in his own right um, was uh, was great. Yeah, I was a huge fan of uh, American Gothic, and he was on that when he mm-hmm. first got first got started. See, that was right after the war. I, yeah, I think, exactly. Yeah. I think he did Gothic before uh, Sling Blade. Yeah, but he he hated the process of gothic because he had to. I think they shot. Where did they? Sh- I think they shot in Indiana, but it was somewhere away from home. He had to basically relocate, uh, you know. And he was still a high school kid at that point, or early. Like, if I don't know if he was in high school, I know he didn't like that. <laughs> he wanted to be at home. Um, yeah, I think they filmed it in North Carolina, actually. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. I think the show was set in Indiana, wasn't it? Yeah, I believe so. Yes, that's yeah. it. But I know it wasn't in, I think Arkansas is where he's from. Um, uh, let's see, we're in home stretch here. we got, uh, next is The Big White. Oh, well, that was, um, that's a good movie. It's just, it, it, it never, Fargo is an all-time great film. It is a brilliant movie. The Big White is a crime caper. It's a comedy with with a criminal element that's that's kind of vicious at its core. Um, And it's set in the big frozen tundra, and it's quirky and weird. So it's the movie is going to be compared to Fargo. It's not as good as Fargo, um, but it's a really good movie. It was Mark Mylod's, I want to say it was his first American film, because he had done uh, Ollie G in the house on okay, TV yeah. in Britain. Yeah. Um, and, of course, Robin was one of my heroes. And, and you know, the cast was, hell, was 
Woody Harrelson and Robin Williams and Holly Hunter. And me and Tim Blake Nelson were crime partners. <laughs> and Vonnie uh, Rabisi and, and uh, Allison Lohman. So it was just like an incredible cast. We shot up in, we were staying in Skagway, Alaska, shooting over the border, the first part of it, and then we moved to Winnipeg. Uh, our time in Skagway, because that, you know, that's a, a, the, uh, where all the Alaskan cruises go, because okay. it's the only deep port harbor up there. And it was ground zero for the Alaskan gold rush, the Yukon gold rush. Um, Deadwood was just coming on air. So... Everybody, only 400 people live there year-round. During the summer months, the population is around 10,000 um, because there's so many tourists and seasonal workers. Yeah. Uh, but they had kind of opened the town up for us uh, before cruise season started, you know, for us to film. Well, everybody was obsessed with Deadwood <laughs> uh, because, some, like, Soapy, Soapy Smith, buy a bar of soap, $5 inside. That was based <laughs> on the real guy, Soapy Smith. Who started Skagway, Alaska? He oh. was basically the Al Swearinger of Skagway. <laughs> he started in Deadwood. He came after that gold rush. He followed the gold up to the Yukon, uh, and he's buried there in Skagway. Oh, wow. So there was that experience, um, and and then working with Robin, um, who had been one of my heroes as a kid, like you know next to Belushi and, and Bill Murray and him. George Carlin and Richard Pryor, um, and the, the cool thing was one one of still one, one of those thrilling pinch me moments. <laughs> me, him, and Tim Nelson were were talking about. He had just done this film, The House of D, oh, yeah. with um, uh, David Duchovny. Right. Anyway, Holly Hunter's character in our movie has Tourette syndrome. <laughs> well, we're talking about Tourette, and Robin says, "Well, sometimes it's a tactile thing. You know, this uh, you you have to touch." someone before you will look at them. I went, that's Tourette's. He went, no, 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 that's not Tourette's. It, it's a thing. I just did this movie, House of D, where I played this, this mentally retarded character. And I said, oh, yeah, I know. I, I did the same thing in, in Mary, that, you know, I would touch somebody before I would look at them. <laughs> what? I said, I did the same thing in Mary, that the same thing you're talking about. This, if you didn't know someone or trust them, you would touch them before you would make eye contact. <laughs> Are you talking about Something about Mary? Yeah. Yeah. That's you? That's you? Uh, yeah. Oh, my God. That's you. I called people. I was calling people. I said, where did they find this mentally handicapped guy that can do comedy? It's you. You played it. I went, yeah. Yeah, I played it. Well, then, he, the guy you saw on talk shows, that was him 90% of the time. Every now and then, the mask would drop, and, you know, you'd just see Robin. Yeah. And he was a very vulnerable, raw person. Uh, but 90% of the time, he's on. You know, he's, he's entertaining. Yeah. Well, Warren became one of his characters. He started doing me. And, and Frank said, please! Frank said, please! Well, that continued for the course of the week. We'd be doing a scene and cut. Have you played my baseball? Have you? He would start doing Warren. <laughs> Well, one day I got this big, huge, shitty grin on my face as he's doing it. He walks up to me and he goes, what, what, what? I said, reality, what a concept. I memorized side A of that record. I used to go to school and steal your jokes, pretend that they were mine. So I spent a big part of my freshman year doing you. Um, now I'm watching you do me, and it's pretty fucking cool. Um, so we had, uh, with him, 
he sent this beautiful gift, a leather-bound script that he'd sent to everyone afterwards. And about four years later or so, um, he, he didn't know Deadwood. He wasn't watching it. About four, maybe five years later, um, his, I get a letter from his assistant, an email. Is this still earlier email address? Yes. I just wanted to let you know Robin has started watching Deadwood, and he is obsessed with it. Um, and he just wanted to, to, to touch base and let you know. And then uh, uh, she and I became Facebook friends because she worked for him for 20-some-odd years. Oh, wow. So that kind of put me in, in indirect contact with Robin. Uh, but the fact that, you know, he was into something else that I had done, you know, and felt to, to reach out. So that that's like one of my childhood heroes that that I worked with, you know, toe-to-toe and, and got to actually act and movie with. Um, so so the Big White, is, a, is that was a special one. Um, the movie itself, again, a really good movie. It's yeah. just going to be compared to Fargo, and it's not as good as Fargo. Yeah. Um, but I got to work with Robin Williams and Woody Harrelson. I'm actually going to work with Woody uh, starting, well, February 15th and in the month of March. I'm doing a movie with him and Costner down in New Orleans. So nice. that would be my first time working with Woody since doing The Big White. And we hung out on The Big White. We we, we partook. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I don't know what you're speaking of. <laughs> he, he he has stopped partaking, I am told. Um, so. He'd probably already done a lifetime's worth by the time he stopped anyway. <laughs> well, he's been, I saw him on a talk show. I'd heard that he had quit smoking. And then on a talk show, um, <coughs> sometime in the last year or so, I saw him, and he was talking about it. He just said, I found myself, I wasn't present for my family. Um, and I thought, it's time to stop this. And so. Well, and then uh, next we've got uh, Bloodworth, which I know has a special yeah, place for you. Oh, man. I mean, I, I wrote and produced the movie. I adapted the book. And Shane Taylor and I were partners on it, and it took us six years. Um, we had we had it set up in pre-production at a, a significant budget for a for a small film. We were in pre-production in Wilmington. Uh, the worst twelve hours of my professional life um, were I had left a casting session. It was originally called Provinces of Night. That's the name of the novel. Um, and then when we sold it to Sony. Uh, they changed the title, um, and uh, but so provinces. We were set up in pre-production at Wilmington, and we were casting. And I left a casting session over in Venice. And I'll never forget this man. I I, I leave and, and I got a message from David Milch. Yeah, Earl, it's uh, it's Dave. I, um, I just I get, you get a chance. Give me a call here at the house. I need to talk to you. And my first thought was, because I worked on the writing staff of Deadwood also. Okay. And my first thought was, fuck, I bet Doherty's going to get killed next season. Because the real Dan Doherty was murdered in 1888, uh, 10 years after the course of our show. I thought, fuck, I bet Dan's going get, to get killed off. <laughs> so I called Dave, and I was on my way to a tattoo appointment. I'd had this thing scheduled for months. So I'm, I... I call him, and he says, yeah, Earl, I, uh, I hate making these fucking phone calls. But, um, yeah, I, uh, Deadwood, it, it shows, it's canceled. It's over. Huh? <laughs> I had to show, you know, they offered us these 
two movies to wrap up this. That's not how we tell our fucking story. I'm not. It's, it's, it's canceled. Pulled over to the side of the road, and I said, "Wait, hang, hang, hang on, Dave. I pull over the side. What did you just say? Because I had no clue. No clue. Looking back, there was writing on the wall. Um, but we had we had provinces of night set up. Based the the funding was based on Lucas Blunt was playing the kid, and Kristen Bell was playing the girl, and it was based on them that we had gotten our money. So." Deadwood's canceled. I'm just shell-shocked. So I go to the tattoo appointment, and my 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 tattoos hurt. And when you have them, you're like, you take your mind away. You don't focus on how much it stings uh. as they're poking needles in your skin. Uh. Not that night, man. I'm just focused on sting, bleed, hurt, burn. Uh. So I don't think about Deadwood. Well, then the next morning, and I barely slept that night. The next morning, I call our UPM of the movie, and we had a, a the, the main character was a musician. And if we had Chris Christopherson or someone of his ilk, Gibson was going to give us the guitars. But at that point, Chris was unavailable, so we didn't have Chris. We were still casting that role. Uh, well, Gibson was, uh, they were going to give me the guitars at a, a, a serious cut rate. So I call our UPM and I said, I need a check cut to Gibson in uh, Nashville for these guitars. Uh, can't do it. Why can't you do it? We got they got to get started. We got to get them. Mm, you need to talk to our line producer. <laughs> Long story short, the movie the financier pulled out. Uh, um and we lost our money. So man. we were in so in a 12-hour time I go from I've got my first movie script in pre-production with a decent budget and attachments and I'm I'm on the writing staff, and I'm Doherty on Deadwood, and the top of the fucking mountain. And within a 12-hour span of time, both of them were dead. Both projects were over. So we had to circle the wagons on the movie. Um, and it took us three years of putting the dog and pony show on to try to get other people to come on board and finance. And we finally did. We put together $5 million bucks. Uh, we got Christofferson. Chris was available. He had read it in the interim, and then he wanted to play it um, because of the parallels to his own life, because it really kind of touched a nerve with him. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it ended up in '09. We, we got the money, and we got it made. It is hands down the most difficult thing I've ever done. Um, and, uh, you know, I basically had to work to get the money, I had to sign. I had to reinvest. So we were working at scale. I was working at scale as an actor and at WGA scale. But that was one of the financiers' uh, caveats: is I had to have skin in the game. So, you know, I basically worked for nine months, twelve months for nothing. I made no money. Um, we got and and we sold it. Uh, we did not make all of our money back. So I've never seen a dime from it. Um, you know, but I was over a barrel. I had no choice. Like, okay, either I I have to take this. I have to sign off on this deal or we're not going to get to make the movie. Yeah. Um, so I did. Um, the end result is we still got to make the movie we wanted to make. Uh, one of the, the financier that caused the problems with me, um, he, he asked us to give his bartender a gig. His bartender was an aspiring actor out here in L.A. Luckily for us, the bartender was a 
really good actor and a super nice guy. And he had a, a two-scene part. So that was the only creative thing that was forced on us. And it worked out. The guy was great. Hell, I would cast him anyway. Um, so we got to make the movie we wanted to make. We didn't have to, to um, you know, give in to that. Uh, but good God, it was a labor of love that almost killed me. I got fucking walking pneumonia at the end of the process because I wasn't sleeping. Uh, the flip to it is I became really close friends with Chris Christopherson. We would hang out every night. He was there for three weeks, and our apartments were next to each other. And we had we had done the last rites of ransom pride together a few years before. Okay, yeah. Uh, so we had met on that movie, um, but uh, but on Bloodworth we we hung out, and that was kind of every night we did. And and you know and he's and still remains one of my absolute heroes. I mean the guy's just he's you know I, as I tried to explain to my daughter because she got to know him. You know, this is my dad's friend. He's an old man. I said, honey, you have to realize, in 1976, imagine if Kanye West and Channum Tatum, uh, Tatum Channing, whatever his name is, <laughs> imagine if they were the same person. <laughs> like, the biggest, hottest movie star in Hollywood and the biggest rock star in popular music. That would have been Chris Christopherson. Because yeah. he was a rock star and a movie star. Um, and, and just, you know, it, creatively hanging out. I had just read the Shel Silverstein biography. Shel's another hero. And I didn't realize how much work that the two had done together. And he would regale me with all these stories of working with Shel. And, and Cowboy Jack Clements, a friend of mine, he's telling me all these stories of Cowboy and, and Johnny Cash. And, and, um, and we'd sit there and, and, pass a joint and pass a guitar back and forth and sing songs to one another. <laughs> and uh, just, just, you know, that in and of itself, to have that experience uh, with someone who I still hold in the highest possible regard as an artist uh, and to be accepted as, as you know, an equal uh, by him, although I do not consider myself an equal to Chris, um, that was worth the 12 months of sheer fucking hell I had to go through <laughs> to get the movie made. Um, so, I, and I think the movie's quite good. There's things I would change. I mean, there's things I'd change about fucking anything I've created. Um, <laughs> there were things I would do differently. Um, there, were, there were a few issues that we had in editing that really could trace back to the script. I think I had told myself, okay, when we get a visual associated with this, the audience is going to understand because you'll have this, you'll understand this 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 plot point here. Yeah. No, no, didn't really. Um, <laughs> and the problem was was in in my adaptation. So I learned a whole lot um, about getting a movie made, about making a movie, and about adapting and writing. So and the and in the end, I became personal friends with. I, I have Chris's cell number. <laughs> you know him and his wife both. I'm friends with. So. Um, so yes, Shane Taylor and I keep. We're, he's done a couple of other films since then, and we have a horror film that we've written together that right now is on the front burner. Well, let's say the front burner of interest. They haven't optioned it yet, but it's a Bloomhouse kind of a project. Okay, so yeah. he's met with those guys, and so I'm hoping that um, that that gets made. It's an original story that the two of us wrote together, but um, but yeah. So Shane and I became warriors in battle and I became personal friends with Chris 
so it was all worth it. Not a bad deal. Mm-hmm. My my one Chris Christopherson uh, encounter, I did an interview with him, and he left me one of my all-time favorite voicemails. Where uh, he was trying to remember what actor had said that he was a fan of his work, and he said, "Ah, oh, no, the second I get off the phone, I'm going to remember it." And uh, mm-hmm. like five minutes later, while I was out walking the dog, I get a voicemail, and I come back and listen, and it's like. The name I was trying to think of was Robert Mitchum, who liked uh, Sunday morning coming down. He and Sam, that was their favorite. Robert Mitchum was the guy I couldn't think of. And this is Chris, by the way. Bye. <laughs> like, that was the most unnecessary to... postscript. <laughs> we, one night we were going to go out to dinner. And Reese Thompson, the kid playing his grandson in the movie, uh, Reese did not know... Uh, he didn't know who Chris was until he started the film. Well, that was right when Rolling Stone had printed that big article that Ethan Hawke had written about Chris. I mean, you know, Chris, Golden Gloves boxer, taught at West Point, helicopter pilot, Vietnam, all these things. And so Reese came to idolize him. So one night, we are in my apartment. We're all going to go to dinner, grab a bite to eat. So we fired up before we're going to go to dinner. Well, Reese is sitting in the, he just turned 21 years old, so he'd just gotten legal to drink. (laughs) But he's high, and he's got the joint in his hand, and he says, today I was was watching the Discovery Channel, and there was a documentary about deforestation and how the forests are essentially the Earth's lungs. Chris, who's standing in the middle of the room, reaches over, pulls the joint out of his hand, looks at me, and went, that young man has had enough. <laughs> he takes a hit, and he's, he's not self-aware of what he's doing. He takes a hit, he hands it to me, and he said, I spent my afternoon reading Blake. The pathway to excess leads to the Palace of Wisdom. He caught himself pot pontificating. He had just been busting the 21-year-old kid about pot pontificating, and not 30 seconds later, he's doing it himself. <laughs> the pathway of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. Oh, fuck me, I've had enough. <laughs> <laughs> the look on his face when he, when he realized, you know, what he, that he was doing the exact same thing the kid was doing in, in pot pontificating of philosophy and poetry... Uh, that was priceless. Oh, priceless. That's beautiful. <laughs> I know he he's doing better. Um, you know he when we were doing the movie, he was starting to lose his memory. Yeah, I heard and, he uh, battling that. Yeah, well, he was diagnosed with Lyme's disease. I hosted the tribute to him in Nashville, uh, which has just come out at the TV special, and there's I'm cut out of it, but I was <laughs> the evening's host, um, and that was April of. 2016. Okay. He had just been diagnosed in February with Lyme's disease. And he was about four months into treatment for Lyme's disease and was doing extremely better. Physically, Lisa said physically, he's 100%. He's back to what he was a decade ago. Oh, great. Um, His memory is vastly improved. I said, so are there still no more films? And she goes, no, he did a Western. He did one with our daughter recently. Um. So I think because Texas Rangers was going to be his last thing because he could not remember his lines. Yeah. 
And uh, he played on I hosted the Waylon Jennings tribute in 2015. He played on it. And that's when he said, I think movies are over. It's, he, he could still remember all of his songs. All that was fine. Um, but it was just new stuff. But since since being treated for Lyme's disease, he's he's much better. Uh, oh, I think he's done another film or two since then. So hopefully he can be back in the game. Well, if I'm DB can be trusted, he actually just did a, a, a bit in uh, Ethan Hawke's uh, Blaze. Oh, well, well, see, Ethan's tight buddies with him. Yeah. So probably. He had on, on Texas Rangers, that what Lisa had said, it, he couldn't remember his stage directions. Like it was that it wasn't just his dialogue. It was like, you know, there was a scene where he was supposed to enter, like pick up a whiskey bottle, and go sit at his desk and deliver his dialogue. Yeah. Well, he walked into the scene like, oh shit, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> um. So, so I, I, that's good to hear. I'm I'm glad that he's he's doing more. I saw. I mean, I've seen them. Where was it last? He just played out here about two weeks ago, but I had the flu and I was afraid if I wasn't completely over it at that point. Um, I've seen him since in somewhere in the past six months or so. But anyway, he's, 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 a, a well, you've interviewed him, so you know. What yeah. Happened. Yeah. And I, we got to see him, uh, after, it was actually for a local performance we previewed. And so we saw him do an acoustic show here in uh, Virginia mm-hmm. beach. And it was just amazing. That's what he stays busy doing. Um, you know, he, he's been doing solo for, I'd ten years playing without the band because I mean the songs are the strength. Yeah, um, and the songs are so fucking good that um, you know there's, it's worth going to hear just to hear them. Oh and yeah, just so, writing good songs and the sparseness uh, with his voice is just yep. know, enthralling. <laughs> well, that's what he, he was talking about. I mean, you know, story's been written, but he said he goes, you know, hell, I got signed. I was a songwriter. And I got I got signed. I said, "Hell, I sound like a goddamn frog." <laughs> I said, "Yep, a frog that tells the absolute truth with every word and note you sing." <laughs> um, so, you know, he never had a pretty voice, um, but he, you felt it. You, you know, the songs were so damn strong, and his delivery of them was so truthful that, um, yeah, all time favorite. Excellent. Well, actually, I had one more on the list, but I just realized it was Last Rites of Ransom, Random Pride. So I think we've covered Chris, Chris pretty well at this point. Yeah. <laughs> hey, is there any particular obscurity in your catalog that I didn't have on my list that is particularly worth mentioning? The leaps to mind? I don't remember. I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, if, it, if it's any obscurity, I've, I've, no, you've hit on the high points, the ones that a lot of people aren't aware of. Like Blue Iguana's a movie worth watching. Big White's definitely a movie worth watching uh, that very few people have ever watched. Yeah, and they're out there and available. You can find them, and and they're worth seeing. So, um, no, that's and they were overall good experiences. Fair enough. Um, well, I, like I said at the beginning, I appreciate you uh, indulging this uh, ridiculous premise, but. Uh, as you can no, tell, people fun. end up having stories even for the most obscure stuff. Well, there, there's one good story. We can close out on this one. Okay. And it's a Ransom Pride story. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, well, Ray Wiley Hubbard wrote Ransom Pride. Now, that's a movie I have a difficulty with. I, to be honest, I've never watched the full final product. Okay. Because Ray had scored it. And uh, I don't know if you know Ray's music. 
Um, he's one of those Texas blues guys. He started out as a folky. Um, and then when he hit about 40 years old, he started finger picking blues. And he's just, he's, he's one of my favorites. He's one of the few musicians that most people have never heard of that I think is brilliant. And I give his records to people. Um, but we had met and become friends. And he told me about the, he was a big Deadwood fan. He was like, written this movie. I think it's going to get made. I'd love it if you do it. So that's how I ended up doing the film. And Yoakum was in it and, and Chris. And uh, so, but anyway, Ray had scored it with this kind of primitive blues music. The producers took the fucking movie away and rescored it, and they put a score with goddamn synths in it. Uh, you know, uh, and, and it just it, it cuts up those scenes and that dialogue was written to be underscored by Sun House beating on a fucking log. You know, <laughs> that's our rhythm to this. Um, and when so. I've not watched the finished film because I know Ray was so disappointed in, in the end process. Um, I've got it. I have the DVD. And because I'm friends with Ray and I know what, what it did to him by having that stuff changed, I've, I've got to sit down and watch it. But but the story, uh, Chris and I first seen together, and midday or mid-morning, I told him, I said, you and I have a mutual friend. And, you know, and Chris is he's friendly, but he's not like overtly, hey, I'm Chris Christoph. You know, he's, he's kind of quiet. Yeah. And so midway through the day, we're, cameras are turning around. And I said, we have a mutual friend in Nashville. Who's that? I said, uh, uh, Cowboy Jack. Or I said, Jack Clement. He goes, yeah. Cow- you, Cowboy? You, you know Cowboy? <laughs> I said, I don't, I've known Cowboy for about 10 years. I don't go to Nashville, but I don't go visit out at the Cowboy Recording Spa and Hotel. And he went, oh, my God, you know, Jack gave me my first job. I said, oh, I know. I've heard all those stories from Cowboy. That's how I met Cash. I said, oh, I know. I've heard the stories. I said, did you know that Jack's been sick? Huh? I said, Jack has had uh, prostate cancer. No. I said, I, I, I have not spoken to him since the diagnosis, but he's through... Um, the, the treatments, I'm told, and I'm told he's getting much better. Um, but, uh, but yeah, he's, he's been, been down. Do you have his cell number? I said, yeah. Could you, could you give it to me? So I give him his number. Lunchtime, um, he comes by my trailer, knock on the door. I said, what? He goes, I just got off the phone with Cowboy, and he told me to give you a message. I said, what? He said, tell Earl... No, I had said he had, no, no, I, I had said prostate. He said, tell Earl it's colon cancer, not prostate cancer. God damn it. He missed it by about two inches. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I said, so you definitely talked to the cowboy. And uh, uh, ended up a couple years later, Jack's cancer came back, and that's that's what did him in. But, but yeah, there, there was a personality oh i got uh um, i've got uh, shakespeare was a big george jones fan on dvd oh yeah uh, that uh, is cowboy dude <laughs> if you went over and hung out at the cowboy arms that's what you experienced <laughs> uh, yeah that was I, I didn't even know anything about him at the time i, I, I somebody sent me a copy of that uh, to review when it first came out and i was just like this is astounding <laughs> mm-hmm. he and he was that let's make something <laughs> you know the uh, Dear Dead Delilah, it's one of the great lost drive-in movie theater films, you know, and it was, he funded it, and it broke him, 
I mean, he lost like $2 million. This is back in the 70s in Nashville. Um, he goes, what the fuck did I know about making a movie? Nothing. I just wrote a check. Come to find out, I wrote too many goddamn checks. Um, and it, it was in limbo. I tried to hook him up with either Rhino or Tarantino's company. Because, you know, Quentin, was he would do those Tarantino presents. He'd find those great lost movies. Yeah. And the movie was, it had been, the master was owned by this print company. The producer had never made the guy that made the prints. And he sued them. And he got the, the, the masters back uh, and controlled the film. So I think it was released on VHS, like in the early days of VHS. Yeah. But nothing since then. And Jack said, oh, I know that. But I, he goes, I forget how much how much money he wanted, like 40000 bucks or something he was owed. And Jack goes, I'm done writing checks about that goddamn thing. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah. I'm aware of the film, but uh, I, I've certainly never seen it. He played the drive-in circuit in the South in the mid-'70s. Uh, I saw it because I remember there's a clip from it in, in uh, George Jones' Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, the, the decapitation scene. And I remember having seen that. I'm, I may have seen it at the drive-in when I was a kid. I don't know, but I remember having seen it. So, um, you know, it's, it's just one of the great pulpy schlock horror movies. That, you know, one of those drive-in films. be nice to find someone to, to reissue it. I mean, there's certainly enough reissue houses out there. Yeah. Well, that, again, I, I, I reached out to a friend that worked at Rhino. Uh, he worked at Rhino Records, but, you know, Rhino... They did that for a while. Uh, they really re-released some of those films. And then Tarantino there for a while was doing it. Um, but, you know, since Jack's passing, I just wanted to do it because it's Jack, and maybe he could get a little bit of money back from it. But never happened. I'll see if I can't think of some place. Whoever still owns the rights to it now, I guess. Uh, yeah. There was a lien against it over the monies that were owed. Oh, wow. Um and it was it was a company that struck the prints, you know, um, but I don't remember who it was or where they were. But until the lien was paid off, they owned it. So, well, now I'm gonna have to start doing research, and I do enjoy doing my research, as you can tell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, well no, I guess Jack's kids, his his daughter and son, I guess they would control the rights now. It probably would have passed down to them. Um, I think everything went to them. Uh, well, there's some, uh, I can't think of the name of the company right now, but there's a reissue house that does a bunch of, uh, the, the more obscure films from the 70s and 60s. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's, I mean, that's prime perfect for it. Um, and I would think whoever the hell owns the lien, just to get, that, to get paid fucking anything is better than nothing. Um, <laughs> and just because of Jack's, you know, the legacy of Jack, because um, hell, you know, he ran Nashville for several years. He owned half of it. Um, and so many artists, you know, Town Van Zandt, Waylon, Porter, he made so many of these great records. Yeah. Um, and that was his one foray into movies. And then he made two TV pilots, neither of which he never finished, because that's what all that stuff from, from the Shakespeare uh, movie you know, it's it's from those unaired pilots. Um, Jack just loved him. Let's make something. Let's do something. 
So. I'm a sucker for a, a, a pilot that never made it on air. I actually had a feature for a while on a website called Pilot Error, where I just interviewed people talking about the pilots they made that uh, never made it to air. Mm-hmm. I made a great one. That uh, Well, there's two that were great and were killed off. 1% on HBO, the Outlaw Biker Show, okay, that Michael yeah. Tolkien wrote. Yeah, I'm right here. Donald Logue and Abe Ben Ruby and James LeGros. That's a great fucking show. <laughs> and then um, um, for uh, um, DreamWorks TV, ABC bought it. It was Gary David Goldberg and Chris Hinchy. It's Chris's very first TV thing. Oh, God, what was the name of it? It was uh, me, and it was Charlie Sheen was the lead. It was Charlie's very first TV thing. This It led to him doing Spin City. But it was Charlie and Joey Pantoliano. Um, I'm on IMDb right now. I'll find it. See. it was Barney Miller-esque. Um, and they were shooting it like, like they were doing Sports Night. It was a multi-camera show, but they were shooting it like a single camera, like a camera would follow a character down a hallway into another set. Sugar Hill. And Sugar Hill. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, th- that and, and 1% were like really, really good shows that for a myriad of political and financial reasons never saw air. Somebody put 1% on Vimeo about a year and a half ago and, and I blasted, I just put it on social media and I went, any of you that want to see a great outlaw biker show and it lasted about a month until it was discovered and, and yanked. Um, I have a copy. Donald got me a copy. He got it through CAA. Um, so I do have a, a DVD copy here somewhere. Donald is great. I've interviewed him several times, and we're friends on Facebook. And oh, what a great Twitter. guy. I keep and telling him to read his stories on Facebook. Oh, um, what a I told him, in fact, we had talked about it before, how he needs to do a, a memoir and just get it over with. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm like, I, I would love to help you, but you don't need my help. I just want you to write the thing. Yeah, <laughs> calling, calling those just the stories that he's posted. Yeah. Um, you know, I talked to him about the well, the murder, you know, the, the dead body up there off his property. Yeah. Because, um, you know, they found a body up there. I don't know if you knew that. Remember when he wrote that about two or three years ago? Yeah, I do, actually. Um, oh. The story about being up on the property line... And he had his kids in the truck with him, and they stumbled on this guy with a window, a van with blacked-out windows, and the guy was in dress shoes and shorts, and he just seemed so out of place. Yeah. And um, and that whole thing, and Donald was convinced he was up, he was somebody, he was dumping a body. <laughs> yeah. Well, they found a body up there. Yikes. And I, I contacted him. I said, have you, he, he'd been in touch with the police. A detective had interviewed him about what he had witnessed. I don't know if they tied it together, um, but, uh, but yeah. Man. Yeah, he's, he is just a wealth of, of anecdotes, and, uh, mm-hmm. and many of them are, as you, as you obviously well know, reading them on Facebook, they're extremely poetic. Yeah, he's a wonderful writer. He really is. So I hope he makes good on that and, and does an actual memoir. I know he has a novel he was working on anyway. Yeah, I knew he had that he had off and on had worked on a novel. I remember him mentioning that. Yeah, because I knew Finn and Arlo, uh, my daughter and his oldest, 
um, were in uh, Gymboree together. Oh, wow. They were like four, three or four years old. They were toddlers. That's how I got to know Donald. And, and I was up for the Dow of Steve. Um, oh, wow, yeah. Right after something, that was right after something about Mary, and I went and met with them. And that's the one script as I did not get it. Didn't get it at all. Um, and then I saw the end result with him, and I didn't know him at that point. I met him, like, right afterwards. I remember thinking, that guy is so much better in that role than I ever would have been. <laughs> um, and then, lo and behold, we're at Jimboree with, hey, aren't you? Hey, aren't you? So that's how we got to know one another. Well, it's so funny when I'm on Facebook and I've got, Everybody, every time I interview somebody and they're on Facebook, I add them as a friend. And it's gotten to a point now where I'll put out uh, things on social media. I'm going to be talking to someone. If there's some, some role in particular you want me to ask him about, let me know. And, like, Donald chimed in when I interviewed Lance Henriksen. He was like, oh, ask about this movie we did together. And then Jim Beaver would be like, oh, ask such and such about this movie. It's completely surreal. <laughs> now, are, are we Facebook friends? We are now, yeah. On, on, the, on my private Facebook, right? Yeah, exactly, right. Yeah. Was it through that or Twitter that week? Uh, Facebook is where it was. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, hey, man, it's been great talking. I'm going to go to the movies. Appreciate you, like I say, taking the time to indulge me here. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm I'm a bullshitter, if you couldn't already tell that. Well, but you bullshit very well, and I appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am a professional, you know. Well, absolutely. All right, man. Thank you so much. Talk to you later. All right. Talk to you later.